position. Affirmative. Negative. I am the milkman. My milk is delicious. Roger that. Okay, let's go. Welcome to the Best Linux Games Podcast. Go, go, go! The best Linux games, the best games available for the uh, GNU slash Linux operating system via the mechanism and distribution network known as Steam, brought to you by Valve. After 700,000 years, the Steam has come to Linux, and beyond that, it has come to Linux in the form of the egalitarian Linux-like platform, Steam, an open marketplace in which Everyone, total meritocracy, everyone, regardless of size, amount of money, regardless of amount of developers, and prospective sales. But if you have a game, and it is good, then get time and it will thrive. And you will be my work. Gentlemen, it's Saturday, and that means it's time for one thing. It's time for the podcast where the quality goes in before the name goes on. You're listening to the Best Linux Games Podcast, a companion piece to the uh, Steam group of the same name. Find us on Steam, you know, uh, join us on Steam, and friend me on Steam. My name is Scooky Sprite. I am your host. In case this is your first time here, uh, the ground rules for everything that we do are very simple. We have news, we have the latest titles that we are interested in, of course, features, you know, like kind of in-depth looks or reviews, and then we have, of course, everyone's favorite, the deals, uh, the best games that you can buy for as cheap as possible. If you join us on the group, our recommendations are curated with the sole criteria of It must run on Linux, and it must be really good. These are recommendations only, of course. Uh, not complete reviews, which generally will follow, um, especially once they get some other mofos on this show. And as always, the content that awaits you ahead may not be appropriate for members of all species, races, genders, classes, creeds, and especially might not be age or work appropriate. So, it begins. Let's get the next game on, bitches! Hello, and welcome to episode number 241 of the Best Linux Games Podcast. This is being recorded for you on this Saturday, the 8th of June, 2019, at 1500 hours uh, Pacific Coast time. That would make it for our sequel friends, of course, 2019, uh, 06, 08, uh, 1500 hours, so like 3 o'clock, left coast time, Pacific Coast time. Ghost with the most crack engineer, Ivor Molina, over there in the booth. Looking lean, mean, and ready to fucking get the show on the road. Oh, look at you, Ivor. You look you look great. I want to remember you just like this because you're fired. He's holding up the whiskey sign. You're fired. Ah, let's have some whiskey. Mmm. Mmm. Hot damn, we have a fucking enormous show for you this week. I mean, mmm. When I say enormous, I mean enormous. Uh, I spent upwards of seven hours last night, yesterday through into last night, um, preparing our feature for this week because it's a story that I think that. Well, let's get straight to our top stories. You know, but just so that 
Yeah. This is part of the top stories. We're at the top of the show. We've started the show, Ivor. Yes. Yes, we're I'm hoping to get this done in an hour and a half. But you know what that means. Every time I say that, that means we're gonna be here for like five hours. It's gonna be like a seven hour long show. Anyway, so um I forgot what the fuck I was just talking about. Uh oh yeah. I spent much longer than five hours yesterday writing and researching our feature this week. Uh, because, uh, yeah, that's what I was saying. It's a little, I think that it is, everyone knows it's like a big tech story, but I think that it is not being quite interpreted. The, the potentialities that arise from Google's announcement earlier this week. Uh, two nights ago, I think, or two days ago, uh, of their Stadia streaming service, I think has not yet fully been digested by uh, the gaming public. And we're going to, that's our feature this week, we're going to take a fucking deep dive, we're going to talk about the potentialities, we're going we're to we're explore what it is, when it is, the factual realities of it, but then we're going to take a really good hard look at what this might portend for both the gaming industry uh, at large along with what this might mean for Linux gaming in particular um, less so of the Linux gaming in particular because the, the major segue between B, th- this podcast and Google Stadia, the reason why we're covering it or why wh- how we got sucked into covering it is that Google Stadia uh, runs off of free and open source software, um, which is not surprising. But we'll, we'll talk more about that in our future. We got we got miles to go before we get there. So first of all, in our top stories, I want to just express that we are unlikely to survive this episode, nor ever see its con- live to see its conclusion. So, with that in mind, and a song in our heart, Excelsior, come with me on a venture of mystery. Um, because this is such a stadia-focused episode, and if we can pull this off, trust me, it's going to be worth sticking around for. We don't know because we haven't done it yet. So, blah. But I've done I've done a lot of work trying to um trying to put together uh, a concise, but you know, uh non-superficial exploration of Stadia and its implications. However, we are Best Linux Games Podcast, and this week, I finally played Kingdom Come Deliverance, which requires a uh, DLL fix. It's a very simple fix. Um, If you want to, if you need, if you're not like a if you can't process my voice right now, you don't have a piece of paper or whatever, and you've been wanting to play Kingdom Come Deliverance, it works great via Proton. You just need to go to ProtonDB and search uh, for Kingdom Come Deliverance. And then look at the reports and they will tell you the exact paths, but basically you just need to go to browse local files after you install it via Steam. And then in your uh, whatever, you know, file interface you have, like Nemo or whatever, um, 
you go to one folder that's like two folders in and you copy all the DLLs from that folder to like the folder that's in like a parent directory uh, one level up and then the game works and two people have ranted at me this week about how much they are fucking in love with Kingdom Come Deliverance and thank you, special thanks go out to Figgledorf and uh, Mr. Dazman who is or not, not Dazman, um Mr. Uh, Iben Yerkley or something like that, he just changed his name so I can't remember it uh, but they encouraged me because I bought the license for uh, Kingdom Come Deliverance which I ran one time like the day after it came out I got the license the day it came out um, and it ran okay but I was like doing other stuff for the podcast at the time and so I filed it away in the back of my head and then like yeah, a month ago or like three weeks ago something like that I went to go play it again and it didn't work um, but because of Figgledorf and uh, guy's name looks like I, you're Ben Affleck, I can't remember fuck, I just talked to him this morning, but thanks to those two guys uh, they applied enough pressure to make me revisit it and so last night I couldn't get to run, and I went to ProtonDB to you know, see what other people have been doing, which is what you should do if you can't get a game to run via Proton, the first thing you should do is go and check out ProtonDB and read the reports for the game you should do that after you buy the game, in my humble opinion, because you can always return it um, you know, like you don't want to, because it it did it did require like fifteen minutes worth of reading, but that's a big pain in the ass when you know people have limited time and so like when you really want to play a game, I say buy it first, you know, via Steam, buy it first via Steam, see if it runs via Proton. If it doesn't, then just fucking return it or take whatever um researching and tweaking steps that you have actual time for without it cutting into like, I have to live and go to work and family and stuff. Um, but anyway, it's a very simple fix and Kingdom Come Deliverance, I've only spent like, uh, God, like an hour in it. Holy shit. It has an uneven beginning. Like, but my God, when two people whose opinions I respect as much as Fagaldorf, who is an inveterate gamer, you know, um, he's young. But he he knows he knows good games, and uh, I've been your Aflac or whatever the fuck that guy's name is, who I've known for like I don't know nine months or whatever. Um, when two people the same week come to me and say you really need to fucking play this game, both of them said independently of each other that Kingdom Come was actually their pick for game of the year. Figgledorf is a little more random and hyperbolic, a little looser in his talk. Um, in terms of like, you know, these sorts of evaluations then both myself and or your Ben Affleck or whatever the fuck, but I had to check it out I was compelled and it does work, so that's like three great reasons why you should check out Kingdom Come Deliverance if you liked Skyrim at all Kingdom Come Deliverance will blow your fucking mind and I can say that pretty confidently after only an hour of playing it you will hear more about Kingdom Come Deliverance uh, either next week or the following week after that. Also, in our top stories, big piece of news today, Mordow, M-O-R-D-H-A-U, everyone's favorite fucking chivalry replacement first-person hack and slasher of the fucking super-tuned 
uh, Dark Ages, Mordow pushed out uh, their seventh release today. It's update number seven, which includes uh, new map Crossroads, which we, I've been playing actually on. Uh, I've been playing Crossroads in like a pseudo beta. Um, for like the last 10 days, it seems like the developers generally after midnight Pacific Coast time, um, were opening up, uh, Crossroads servers just to test bunches of stuff. It wasn't something that they really made super public and I, I didn't even, I've, I've been crushed by work this week, but I didn't even realize that, oh, I probably should tell other people about this because I didn't realize that it was that special, but it, was that special? Anyway, Crossroads, the new map, first new map uh, for Mordow in a while, has been pushed out. Comes uh, This update also comes with a new weapon, an axe with a, um, it's a heavy axe with the alternate fire mode actually turns into a carpenter's hammer. Um, and then there's like, I want to say maybe 80 to 130 some odd uh, tweaks, rebalancing things and other alterations to the game all of which are thoroughly documented in uh, the release notes which I read the entirety of because I was hoping that there would be a rapier and or spear nerf slash fix alas none is such for none is forthcoming but this is big news because it's more now but more importantly I know because I've been talking about more now a lot on this show and not everyone's into it that's fine I respect that I understand um more importantly, they also simultaneous to this new update announced that they have sold over 1 million copies. Congratulations to uh, I can't ever remember what the fuck it's like, Triturnion or something like that. Congratulations to these developers. I think that you know, I'm only, I've only got 90 hours under my belt, but I am I, I've been saying this all weekend because I've been wanting to play it for the last five days. I just want to mainline Mordow into my brain for the last five days. And you know how anytime you get like that with a game, all of a sudden work comes and there's absolutely no time for anything? Yeah. Um, that's my week. Um, but uh, congratulations to uh, Triturnian Games. One million... Yeah, Triturnian. One million units sold. I think that... And I'm very measured... Uh, in terms of the scope, I you know I try to think pretty hard before I issue proclamations like this on this podcast. Conversationally, I might say whatever, but uh, these last three or four days, I've found myself saying this twice and thinking it a lot more. Mordow, even in its present state, which is in full release, it's out of early access. I think it is. It has the potential. to be a legitimate masterwork. Um, you know, time will tell. But uh, every time I boot up this game, even when I'm drunk and stoned and shitty and lose and suck and fail, and am like invincibly ignorant to learning or comprehension or anything, I every time I... F- I learn or find something new. Might be something small, might be something huge. But uh, 
and generally it's something small that turns out to be huge like really mastering um, acceleration deceleration mechanics in terms of thrusting uh, with Fagelorf, uh last week or I guess that was maybe 10 days ago I mean we can explore that topic endlessly the game is one of the most technical games fighting games that I've ever seen and it is so simple it's so anyway if you if you like sword fighting at all you should check out Mordow. Congratulations to Triturnian and uh, Mordow and the entire project and everyone and all the fans and everybody. The great community. Um, One million copies sold for an independent game that they thought was not going to get any attention. I mean, you know, it makes a fellow proud. You know, it's good to see that we live in a in a time where the game industry and technology is such that this sort of story is possible to deliver to you. I'm, I'm not kidding. I, I, I just almost got emotional there for a second because, I mean, I understand where these guys have been in terms of, you know, being a small developer and how long they've worked on this project and stuff. And, I mean, one million copies. That is, you know, that's fantastic. So, cheers to Mordow. Also, uh, two technical hardware notes, very short ones. Uh, I had to get an Elgato cam link to hook up my uh, Super 4K Panasonic camcorder uh, to get it to interface with OBS and then uh, use my uh, Mackie FX12 mixer for my piano YouTube videos. Um, and I am pleased to report the cam link 4K the Elgato Camlink 4K, which is just like a, it's it's like a USB wart. It's like a dongle that sticks out. It takes the uh, HDMI uh, cable from your actual camcorder and converts it into a um, uh, a video input source that's recognizable by you know your operating system. And the big news here is that yes, it totally works on Linux. That is really cool. The reason for this, in terms of like the gaming implication of this, the reason why I'm mentioning it here on this show, is that uh, having um, like a real camcorder, uh, it depends. It's very tricky to find a you know the right one. If you like live streaming and really want to take your um, mug box to like the next level, this is the hardware you need. You know, you'll need a cam link, and you'll need a good camcorder and a setup and stuff like that. Uh, like, you know, like a tripod and, you know, you'll have to figure out your audio. Anyway, we're not, we're not talking about the nitty gritty here. Bottom line is I was very nervous because I read some people said that it does not work on Linux at all. Other people, you know, blah, 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 blah. Lots of conflicting reports. It's a $120 dongle and it works great. More or less. Now, the other Elgato project product that I purchased this week which is something I have lusted after for at least a year now is the Elgato Stream Deck which is a 15 button uh, breakout box that looks like a soundboard like actually like a soundboard like you know where you trigger patches if you think about it like a drum machine with drum pads like a physical drum machine with drum pads um, that's kind of what it looks like but it's very small and the uh Behind the pads is actually a uh, high, de- well, pseudo high definition. Eh, 
it looks pretty full color LCD screen so that you can map um, the button functionality to icons that you either create or find or whatever that show up underneath the buttons on this little breakout box which literally fits inside of your hand it's exactly as big as a pack of cards unfortunately the Elgato Stream Deck um, which there, there, I know of four projects now that I've spent all week researching and trying to implement. There are four projects in the in the FOSS uh, idiosphere that are working to make um, a system, uh, a distrib- uh, uh, an operating system agnostic, distribution independent um, set of libraries that let you access the Stream Decks functionality within Linux or wherever. Right now, unfortunately, the actual software that's required to run it runs only on Windows. Elgato's official software that allows you to compete only runs on Windows. And I think it might also run on Mac, but like I always say, who the fuck gives a living shit about what runs on Mac? Surprised the Mac is even fucking running. Oh, well. Actually, I'm not surprised that it's even running because, I mean, yeah, we're chasing it with hatchets and swords, driving it out of town. Then we're coming for Windows. Okay, that was a flight of fancy. We're not going to hurt any Macintosh computers. And as a stockholder in Apple, um, we are not going to hurt the company or any of its devotees. But the Elgato Stream Deck functionality is coming, although I did not... I spent maybe 10 hours this week um, busting through um, every possible... Uh, GitHub project that's related to make to bringing the Elgato Stream Deck functionality uh, to the open source universe. Um, I, but I, I'm I, I'm not I'm not prepared to uh, not prepared to endorse or release any sort of final verdict on the maturity of these projects because I haven't gotten any of them to work. Um, but I am hardened that they are working on it. That's why I'm not returning it. The Elgato Stream Deck, which, if it worked on Linux, would be fantastic if you like to live stream. Uh, runs uh on Amazon. I think uh, about 150 bucks. You can get the Stream Deck Mini, which doesn't have 15 buttons. It's, right now, it's three rows of five. You can get the Stream Deck Mini for I think 30 bucks less, maybe 50 bucks less. I can't remember. Um, but I, I, I don't have that and I haven't tried it, but I'm not returning mine. I am over the coming days. I will be getting more and more dug in to, uh, seeing exactly what the fuck I'm doing wrong and exactly where the workable status of this type of hardware on Linux presently stands in terms of the average end user. Like, you know, how complex is it? what isn't there, what is tricky that doesn't work, if we can get any of it to work at all. So you can be looking for, you know, stay tuned to this to this space uh, over the coming weeks and months as we try to bring that online. Um, I was going to talk about Feudal Alloy this week, but we are, oh yeah, okay, we still have, we have just enough time. Because I only want to do 30 minutes on the Stadia feature because otherwise we will, because I could talk about the Stadia feature literally for the next five hours. For those of you who doubt this, 
please feel free to uh, jump on um, either our website, www.bestlinuxgames.com or our SoundCloud page and go back and look for our Day X Mankind Divided review, which is a almost four hour long review and took me a long fucking time. I'm getting angry just thinking about Day X Mankind Divided. But anyway, so a thousand years ago on the PlayStation 1, I believe it was, there was a fantastic game, one of the flagship titles um, for that console was called Time Splitters. Time Splitters was a first-person shooter with multiplayer, four-player multiplayer, a la GoldenEye for the N64, all running, you know, a quad-split screen uh, for your TV um, that was graphically superior to anything that you'd ever seen before. It had a plot that was somewhere between um, porno and Jean-Claude Van Damme movies. Plot made no fucking sense, nor did they ever make any pretense to really gin it up with a legit plot. What Time Splitters had, though, was some of the best first-person shooter action ever in gaming history. Literally, I would put it up there with Goldeneye. Um, and especially in terms of console history, there are two first-person shooters that leap immediately to my mind, and those would be Time Splitters 1 and Goldeneye. The great genius of Time Splitters, though, apart from the fact that it had no comprehensible story, was its pro uh, was its not proliferation was its a uh, great assemblage of highly memorable, incredibly fun, ultra stylized, fantastic period characters that you could play as and fight against. I can't remember the actual number of characters. I haven't played Time Splitters 1 or any of the sequels in years, but it's been years and years and years since Time Splitters 1, which is also famous for the uh, first zombie apocalypse mode. Uh, and was the first game in which I think you could ever punch a zombie in the face and rip its head off with your fist by punching it, which is what you do after you run out. Anyway. I'm not going to go into the details of Time Splitters because that's not what we're talking about here, but it is important because this is a cultural touchstone that segues directly into Feudal Alloy, the game that we're supposed to be talking about. Inside of Time Splitters, after you had spent thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands, and believe me, we did, um, playing the game's episodic vignette sliced um, missions which none of them were interlinked except that they went through all different eras of time starting from the 1920s uh, up to the far-flung distant future like um, almost a Minority Report style uh, Fifth Element Lilo Run Lola Run Multipass kind of far-flung future along with all the weapons, accoutrements, costumes, characters environments and etc. associated with each era. And sometimes it wasn't just an era, sometimes it was a genre. Anyway, over the course of completing, there's no main campaign. It's like a game that's built out of like first-person shooter challenges, more or less. Even though they're, you know, you, but you unlock things in stacks and there were, there was so much shit to unlock in Time Splitters. Chief among them, and integrated initially 
part of the, you know, game's addictive super hook charm that hits you right out of the bat was its compelling, magnificently designed, memorable, though none of them have any speaking roles, there's no dialogue, they don't really even have any backstory even in text. They just have, you know, their character model, their costume, and like maybe three or four different, um, like when you select them, they have three or four different like, you selected me animations, like blah. But out of this simple raw material, magnificent stuff was forged. For instance, I mean, I haven't played this game. In, I, I, you know, I, I wrote a poem about it. It's in my, it's in Blue Wizard about to die, you know, the book. But um, I haven't played the game in forever. I can still remember so much about the characters in this game. They were magnificent. And it was hilarious because unless you were playing against other people in your living room and had no online capabilities, maybe it was for the PlayStation 2, I can't remember. But it doesn't matter. This is Time Splitters 1. You would never get to see the characters that, you know, blah, except for when you select them. And still, in spite of that, all of the period aspects of the level design and the challenges and etc., and the character design actually sometimes, you know, rarely and aren't rarely in the entire history of video gaming. It's not it's not impossibly rare, but it is it's rare. Something really magical happens. And I was telling a friend of the show, Jeff Jeffy Wise, about this last night as I was trying to explain what we're about to explain to you now. Um when something legitimately magical happens in a video game, it is a special thing. And so off the top of my head last night, drunk and stoned out of my mind, I explained all this to Jeff and I, I said, I can still remember one of the first characters you get to play as, Lady Jane. Flapper with a with a Tommy gun or Kimbo Tommy guns. Wearing a uh, wearing a too short skirt, string of pearls, slip showing, straight up 1926 flapper with a Tommy gun. Fan-bloody-tastic. Then uh, several missions later, several, you know, blah. I'm going to out myself here with a secret piece of trivia about my life that really only really only I have ever known another character from Time Splitters that was incredibly memorable remember these people don't have any lines there's no dialogue in the game it's a first person shooter was my namesake Fingers McKenzie 1970s uh, era washed up uh, former detective slash wrong side of the law operator and his adventures in 1970s streets of San Francisco style Chinatown warehouses um but then those were the stock characters those were just 
And there were like, you know, 50 fucking stock characters. Who can forget Cultist and his lovable charms? Straight out of 1920. So one of the cumulative effects of this game was that over time, as you, you know, traversed through all of the eras of time and all the missions, all of which, once you completed the main mission, unlocked literally like five different fucking challenges involved in that mission, um, all of which got increasingly harder until it was one of the hardest games I've ever played in my life. It was as hard as Goldeneye, if not harder. Um, especially to do all of the achievements, and there was no such thing as all of the achievements, there was no such thing as an achievement get. Anyway, bottom line is, you probably had, once you got, you know, near to like, you know, after you'd done about 80% of the main campaign, quote-unquote, and I'm going from memory here, I've not looked up a YouTube video or anything, so if I'm factually incorrect on any of this, please do not hold me to account. I'm like almost 40 fucking years old, I'm a drunk, and... I'm remembering a game I haven't played since I was maybe what, 19? So 20 oh my god, yeah 20, 21 years ago, something like that Every of these story mission things that you actually did they, they weren't story missions, they were just missions um, in each era and genre because there's also like the haunted zombie house Scooby-Doo thing and then permutations of them. If you like to play competitively against your friends in the game, by the time you got about 80% through the game, you had about, I want to say, something like 30 characters. And it was fantastic because... Not just because that certain characters had certain attributes that made them different from other characters, like, you know, like... Well, well anyway, there's one particularly short character who is particularly difficult to headshot in comparison to everyone else because everyone else is, you know, half a meter taller than this character and he's like a midget. Anyway, you had a lot of characters. But then the last 20% of the game probably consisted, and that last 20% probably consisted about uh, a thousand hours, something like maybe 500 hours, because you had to get so good at the game to complete the last 20% of all the remaining achievements unlocked even further more insane characters and game modes that somehow featured those characters the first of the truly insane and like you've already played like you know a thousand hours of this game at least to get to 80% and I'm just making up that number you know this, these are not hard metrics but you had seen a lot of insanity because you have all of these characters from all of these different time periods fighting against each other. You know, it's you and three of your friends on the couch in like Chinatown circa 1980. And there's like a guy from the future with laser rifles and they're fucking fingers McKenzie and there's zombies running around and there's, you know, fucking Lady Jane with her and then there's cultist and then there's all the bots. And, uh, and the, the level editor for Time Splitters, the, f- the first one, w- has only been superseded recently in terms of simplicity and absolute featureful functionality. And that was by Doom's Snap Map um, level design tool, uh, which they are dropping from the sequel of Doom, which sucks. But anyway, 
you have seen thousands of hours of unthinkable, crazy fucking bullshit at this point. And that's when the game really spreads its legs and opens itself to you like a screaming black hole miasma flower of pure punishing pain, insanity, and absolute uh, hilarity. It was not just hilarity. Um, reminds me of that scene in uh, Clockwork Orange. Uh, Your victim has died, little Alex. You are now a murderer. Like the, like inexpressible, like being shot out of like your own mind holes as the first time you see that scene is kind of how, as like the steady uh, adrenal IV drip diet of every second, more or less, of time splitters. I don't want to deify this game too much, but it was a, it, I mean, no, it is Hall of Fame shit for my money. But so this last 20% which is like the hardest part of the game. And when I say hardest, I mean like I have not played another first person shooter that had challenges that were this sadistic long term skill based you will practice you will fail and you will do this for five hours a day for the next year in some cases, level of difficulty in terms of the challenges. And that is when you start to unlock the insane characters. And there are about 20 of them, if I remember correctly. One of the first ones that, like, where you just get that moment of high hilarity where it feels like you're getting a body high because you cannot fucking believe that someone did this in a game was when you unlock the gingerbread man. When you see... 10 life-sized gingerbread men in three dimensions with their icing on their faces, their smiles, their innocence, their wholesomeness as they come at you with dual combat shotguns and laser rifles or when you blow a gingerbread man's head off and you notice that they make it look like the edge of the neck, like a cookie cracker. You begin to experience levels of insanity that only time splitters and or hardcore hallucinogenic psychopharmacopical substances can uh, normally engender. So first was Gingerbread Man. Another notable one was, if I remember correctly, there was like a da- angry... Daffy Duck generic homicidal sociopathic cartoon duck with tail feathers and like a little sailor coat who would just fucking murder you and when 15 of them are coming at you, it's fucking madness things are going, it'll make you quack up I, it, I think that was from Time Splitters but of all of the things that were in Time Splitters my favorite was one of the last things that you unlocked. It was a character so brilliant. I I'm I'm not having like um uh a mental breakdown here when I say this because like I been thinking about this for the last four days and every time I think about it I almost get choked up. I almost get emotional. Uh 
Because like I said, sometimes in gaming history, in, 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 you know, in, in the, the portions that you're, you're alive to experience, sometimes something magical happens. And when that magical thing happens, it is, you know, it's like falling in love. It's, you know, super profound thing. One of the last unlocks that I can remember and my favorite unlock and my favorite character from the entirety of Time Splitters. It's a character named Robo Fish. Robo Fish is a humanoid bipedal hyper acrobatic robot about somewhere between a meter and a half to just over two and a quarter meters tall. He's short. He's a midget-like humanoid robot. In terms of like aesthetics and countenance appearance, you know, blah of his design, he resembles like a 1950s style clunky robot. But as if that design had been fully realized 200 years in the future so he's got like sleek cylindrical arms and they have like you know ball joints with his thing was amazing however Robofish is about the size of a large chimpanzee and generally has animations that that are similar to a chimpanzee like he'll do backflips and kind of chirp in almost analogous like how an orangutan or whatever chimpanzee whatever would like hoot and holler at something that you know but the thing about Robofish that made him so brilliant was that Robofish's head isn't just like a at first glance it looks just like an alien bubble dome on a 1950s robot but it's way too cylindrical and then you realize that there's something in the center there's like a face and first you think it's all like a hologram but then you realize that no Robofish's head is a fucking goldfish bowl and inside of that goldfish bowl is the fish that actually is controlling Robofish's body and fishes are stupid and do not know how to use heavy weaponry in human-based meat space, nor have they been trained for this capacity, and it was glorious. It was the most insane thing that I had seen. It was one of the most insane things I've ever seen in any video game ever, and magnificent, heartbreaking work of Staggering Genius, creative triumph uh, that will stand the test of time and the ages now it seems kind of quaint that you know it was so insane at the time but once you got to know Robofish you started to realize that they spent a lot of sick time hashing out totally immaterial details to Robofish's um, character design you know from his animations to blah that I mean there's no story to the game you know, so it's not like there was no need to do this and they did it and they didn't just go the extra mile they went like extra 50 miles once you realize that Robofish is a fish with guns inside of a robot body 
And you realize that it's acting like a fish would if given a robot body. It is hilarious. It reminds me, um, about eight years ago, uh, ten years ago, Make Magazine did a, a great feature on uh, Arduino-powered robot cockroach that actually used a real robot, a real cockroach, a real, like, you know, meat space uh, biological organism cockroach. They, you know, they attached electrodes to its brain and made it control the robot or something. It totally reminded me of RoboFish, but RoboFish has lots of guns. <laughs> when, some guy, when a guy who is a fucking fish in, it's like Krang, but he's small, <laughs> and it's controlled by a fish, when he comes at you with a Kimbo double-barreled shotguns, and it's just spraying your screen with death. I mean, it does not get... That's <laughs> one of the most insane things ever. Well, evidently, RoboFish made quite the impression, not just on myself, but on the developers of a game called Feudal Alloy. And because we're running out of time, I'm sorry. I I, I really wanted to talk about RoboFish, but then the Stadia thing happened. Um, but Feudal Alloy, which I'm just going to read the copy that I prepared for this, which is like a steampunk-esque two-dimensional side-scroller um, in the tradition of Metroid and Castlevania Symphony of the Night, the neologistic combination of the of those two titles, which we are not going to mention ever again on this podcast, ever again. Um, but that being Metroidvania, fuck! I mentioned Ivor, you're fired. More whiskey. He's holding up the whiskey sign. Mm. Good call. So, feudal alloy. That's F U E D A L space. A-L-L-O-Y. So it's a steampunk-esque two-dimensional side-scroller platformer in a post-human acid trip of an inventory-based heavily role-playing game um, Yeah, heavily role-playing standard run-and-jump platformer but with heavy role-playing elements and, uh... Yeah. Yeah. So, the best way to describe the game is, like, think Futurama. Like, if you've ever seen that show. Remember Bender? You look kind of like Bender. But if you think about Futurama, but set, instead of in the future, it's set in, like, an alternate universe, kind of post-apocalyptic far-flung, futuristic, pseudo-feudal Europe of the dark and middle ages, but with robots. And these robots, at least your robot, guess what? You have a conical, clear glass dome for a head, unlike robofishes, you know, traditional goldfish bowl-style, ovular, spheroid configuration. And inside of your head is the goldfish that controls you in feudal alloy. Um, so yeah, it's set in, yeah, alternate, far-flung, post-apocalyptic, science fiction, steampunk, feudal Europe universe with robots controlled by the fish in their heads. And, of course, these robots fight with 
you know, broadswords. Because that makes sense. I mean, that's the next logical. <laughs> Ain't it all wrapped up in the attractive and alluring package of a two dimensional side scrolling run and jump platformer with uh, puzzle elements and role playing elements? I, I've only gone to spend uh, about two hours in Feudal Alloy, which came out, I think, a while ago, but it, it escaped my attention until I. I found it like on Monday of this week I want to say something like that way early in the week I was like wait a minute you guys made a game where the protagonist is a robot it's being controlled by a fish inside of the robot's terrarium head you've brought back RoboFish so Robofish rise again and his message remains eternal undiminished from whatever injuries and obscurity you know from whatever injuries suffered by being doomed low these many years to uh, obs- the, the category of obscure video game trivia from the first generation of next generation consoles or whatever also so I wanted to get that in because like we're going to do a lot about this Google Stadia thing and I want to if you're not into Stadia you should stick around because I'm going to I think I have a perspective that's well at least I haven't seen anyone who has really thought it out in this way so it might have import for everyone and it's going to be a fun fun little ride and so we'll go an hour and a half this week but I, I I want for those of you who aren't into Stadia who aren't into Mordow who you know blah 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 you know we, I try to cram as much stuff into the show I try to give something for everyone I try not to repeat the same stuff every week after week after week you know I try to mix up games and etc I'm only one human being though and it's a news magazine that comes out every fucking week covers the entirety of the fucking Linux game market is a difficult job. This show is a great joy, and it's it's been even better to like um, be a vehicle that it's been to meet so many other like-minded people and to jack them up together and re- make them fry each other's brains until you know they're zombified, you know, Linux certified aesthetic. Oh erstwhile game critics with discerning aesthetic temperaments but anyway our final top story something there's a there was a uh, momentous best in the history of the almost five years now of the best games podcast something happened just before we went to air that is history making a first ever for this show we got a curious uh, easy for me to say we got a curator invitation which is French for saying that by virtue of our role over these several years since they've rolled out uh, via the Steam client uh, game curation via you know curators which is something that I try to do at least twice a year. I normally only do it once a year, but we've curated a lot of fucking games. And in fact, our I haven't checked it 
this week because I I've only checked it twice in my entire life. Last time I checked it was like I guess maybe nine months ago, a year ago. I was blown away. I was literally floored. I got emotional to see that like over, if I remember correctly, something like over 700 people follow us as a Steam curator for being the best Linux games podcast. That was humongous to me. I mean, I don't ever look at the stats for anything. I try not to in terms of the podcast because I'm always talking to you. So it could be one of you, could be a million of you, could be none right now, which it absolutely certainly is because we're not live streaming this, or could be a million of you tomorrow. Always talking straight to you. So I I don't like to let the... uh, I made a decision after the first six months once I like I had metrics to know that like oh yeah okay we are actually people are listening and stuff um I'm like okay I'm I'm unless I have to unless I need to you know upgrade our server other stuff which you know is why I beg you please listen to us via SoundCloud and not through a, a stream catcher if you can I mean we have the stream catcher straight up RSS Linux service available through our website for a reason because we are free and open source you know, evangelists free and open source software evangelists but my god the bandwidth <laughs> it depends on the month or the week but sometimes they're oh my god we get, we get destroyed and meanwhile SoundCloud is a fixed cost so anyway I totally lost my um... oh yeah Historical first for the Best Links Games podcast. And I think this is a feature that if they, if maybe it's been around for the entire time and I've just never been a member of the Cool Kids Club enough for anyone to fucking hit me up with it. Um, but evidently, the Steam client, if you're a curator, now has a function for uh, devs and publishers who wish to reach out to get more critical feedback on their releases. Instead of doing what, you know, the normal protocol is, you know, you fucking hit up the developer or someone at the developers, uh, you know, if it's a larger developer, you hit up someone at the, at reception, find out, you know, how to direct your query, get their email and their name, then write them an email and send them, you know, the Steam key along with your pitch and along with whatever, you know, promo materials and links you have that might, uh, help facilitate a favorable mention in their publication or some sort of review or, you know, actual, you know, they might actually even fucking play the game. That's not how it's done anymore. Evidently, now there is a mechanism inside of the Steam client itself that allows people, you know, devs and publishers who want to help promote their game, match makes them with curators whose games are, you know, who, who, whose selection of games over time or critical slant, I have no idea how the algorithm is based, but it match makes them with curators and then they can reach out to you directly with um, a free copy of their game and right before we went online this happened for the first time to Best Next Games Podcast by the way alright, yes, 40 seconds of this I promise, no longer than 40 seconds of this. A thousand years ago, when I used to write for the paper, 
I knew I had made it when Rockstar would send me a copy of whatever their next biggest game was along with the entire promo package along with the entire swag package and would FedEx it to me to my home address one week before the game street date just saying those days are long gone <laughs> but anyway so risk system which looks like a side-scrolling two-dimensional space shooter I this happened literally right before I went on air to speak to you now um, so I have not played the game I haven't looked at it but risk system has been the first person first corporate entity, development, publisher, indie, anybody to send Best Linux Games podcast a free desk copy. That's what we used to call these, desk copies, you know, review titles. Um, But in this case, there's no material meet space, physical reality. So it's, you know, a license. They sent us a free game. I have not tried it yet. I have no intelligence to report other than it must go down in the log, Mr. Christian. For posterity so that one day when as we wander through the ashes of our fucking ruined planet and destroyed tatters of what we regarded as once an impervious civilization, we will be able to piece together the important aspects of our cumulative history by listening to this episode of the Best Links Games Podcast. So that is a moment of Best Links Games Podcast history. Now, Ivor! Ready to make sale! Let us base them with our feature! Here we go! We're going to talk all about Google Stadia. And even if you hate Google, even if you don't think Stadia is even a good idea, even if you don't know what Stadia is, or even if you don't know what it is, but also hate Google, or even if you've never even used a computer before, stick around I think this might be interesting. Based him with it. I God damn, you're fired. Where's the whiskey? Perfect. Oh my God, it's the Libyans. The Libyans. Never gonna let you down. I can read your mind. This week's teacher. I can't read you. I can't read you. I can read your mind. Take it, Scooby. The Libyans. All right, we are back. Thank you, Ivor. That's great. Yes, please off yourself on the the way out before. Yeah, you got to clock out, and then. Uh, anyway, so it recently came to our attention as uh, <laughs> by recent, I mean, literally the last two days. I think it was January or January sixth. It was June sixth that Google made. A major announcement that I think has not been covered or thought about to scale of what it could mean for gaming. So let's talk brass tacks. On June 6th, Google announced that November will be the launch date for what they are calling their new Google Stadia. S-T-A-D-I-A game service. Now, 
after all of these years, it takes so much to get me to give even two-tenths of a percent units of fucks about anyone's new game service. Especially if it involves a, you know, integrated store marketplace, etc, 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 etc. It is almost impossible. I have seen them come, I have seen them go, I have seen them linger on like ghostly shadows fucking haunting the corners of bereft, vacant Scooby-Doo mansions of the internet wailing these chains I really love me and I have zero fucks to give for all of them, except for Steam and uh, good old uh, Humble Bundle. Good old games has fallen out of my favor. Anyway. There were two things that made my ears prick up when I think it was like 18 hours after they made this announcement. I I did so much research on this that I cannot even remember where I first heard about Google Stadia. But I was instantly repelled and repulsed because it's like, oh yeah, good. Go die on that hill like every the same way that everyone else has. And that grabbed me by the nape of my neck and I got goosebumps. I got a little tingle. I thought, go die on that hill like everyone else has. But this is Google. And so I I I started reading what the fuck Google Stadia is all about. Here's here's why you should care. We'll get into all the tech specs and exactly what it is within the next 90 seconds, but here's why you should care. First of all, Google Stadia is powered entirely by free and open source software. It's a it's a FOSS stack that runs Google Stadia. I have not been able to drill into the details of this, of exactly which parts of Stadia are powered by open source software and what open source software it uses because this was the 6th, today is the 8th. I've had less than 48 hours of time, and that's if, you know, you, that's if all I did was read the internet and never sleep and, and or masturbate. Um, oh, I mean, you're always time for masturbation and booze. But anyway, <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, but that's the first reason why we're covering this. Google Stadia runs off of free and open source software. At least that is the information that I've seen on CNN. These are my sources, CNN, The Verge, and um, what the fuck is the name of that? Uh, Not BuzzFeed, or maybe it was BuzzFeed. Hang on. Where's my citations? Anyway, bottom line is that's the first connection. The second connection, though, to why this is important
it's difficult unless you cover this stuff for years and I started as a game journalist around 2002 as a serious game journalist luckily I've I've cast off those ways you know and thus you have the product standing before you now the best things games podcast where yeah serious journalism yep we're working hard I want more whiskey but when you cover this shit for years and years and years and you write books about it and you see not just the trends that preceded your um, your tenure as you know a games journalist and a critic and an astute observer of the industry and participant therein and etc long before that like you begin to see larger trends and for the last from the entire tenure of my career um almost exclusive exclusively prior to basically the five years that we've been doing this podcast the trend in the game industry overall was towards darkness fascism anti-creative end user manipulation maximum profits limited investment sequelization um, amortizing costs of development of any title across three paradigms can we make it even stupider can we how to what extent are we going to be able to measure the exact amount of hours of playtime how much DLC how many DLCs can we drop and how far apart can we string those drops um, for maximum profit total exploitation all of which um, really it's one of the reasons that w- there's not yet been a full complete second edition and first digital edition of my book Blue Wizard is about to die because the outlook for so long was so corporatized to such an unbelievable extent I mean unbelievable you know, I, I've done reporting on the serious report, you know, reporting on this, um, back in the day day for like Gama Sutra and shit, like legitimate fucking media outlets. And, you know, it, it is bone, it was bone crushingly depressing to see what was happening to what I believe the most, ex- to be the most expressive media, uh, for, uh, ugh, to be the most expressive form uh, a medium of our of artistic um, expression, storytelling, etc., that humanity has ever devised. It's opera of the Renaissance, and then the video game. Those are the two best. And the video game is on a different level than anything else. So it was very depressing. One of the trends that led to the creation of this podcast was I realized that with Valve throwing their weight behind Linux and giving us Steam, you know, giving us the community and quote-unquote quote giving and 
us, quote, you know. Gabe Newell laid it out in that great, um, that great 20-minute speech where he talked about building, the importance of building communities around games and building games as platforms that continuously renew themselves through community participation, be that through modding, well, I ultimately it would have to be through modding, but also by helping developers and publishers to build a community around their game so they can get ideas directly from the community. They can participate on a one-to-one basis directly with the community. This has an enormous a- uh, impact on amortizing the costs of any individual um, title if you're going to be a publisher. You know, if you have to pick and choose from all these devs, well, you're going to pick the one that isn't just a single title but can become a franchise. And you're not just going to pick the franchise that can become a franchise. You're going to pick the one that has the biggest community with, obviously, you know, it has to be a great game on top of that, ideally. Um, But that is how a game... Speaking from, like, a, a traditional book publisher background... You don't make money off of your front list in book publishing. You don't make you don't make any money in book publishing anymore. But but the 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 w- wisdom for the last you know eighty years you know hundred years has been you don't make money off of the new titles that you offer. At, you know at the start of each year, those are the you ideally want a portfolio of risk. You want one super huge bestseller, you know, certain bestseller that everyone knows, then you want, you know, a portfolio of risk. Titles that you know are good by authors that you know are great, who tell, you know, whatever the fuck, write whatever the fuck that you like and that you think there's a market for. But there's a chance that any one of them can fail. That's okay. That's not where you make your money. You put them out that year. You keep them out in your back catalog. And that is where you make your money from. Year after year of licensing, uh, 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 sub-licensing, doing uh, reprintings, second editions, limited editions, etc. of your back catalog and just keeping them available is how you make your money in in traditional print media publishing. It is not that different in video games except that instead of an outlay of let's say, you know, plus like a fucking $250,000 advance, which is like insane amount of money to give any to any scribbler who hasn't already turned out the next fucking Harry Potter for you and made you a trillion dollars. Instead of, in the publishing industry, it'd be, you know, like maybe anywhere between, if you want to talk about the scale on which I've worked, you know, three to... $20,000 outlay in terms of, you know, producing, manufacturing, typesetting, pick, pack, ship, shrink wrap to the wholesaler, blah, 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 the whole thing. It's, you know, maybe when I was doing is $15,000, but, you know, most, I was an independent publisher, but, um, the giant conglomcos of publishing today, I would say, you know, $450,000 would be like the entire budget 
more or less, for a new book. Whereas in the video game industry, the entire budget for the next game, if you're like a AAA, I hate that term, but if you're a AAA developer, it is easily in the 50 to upwards of $100 million department requires an army of coders, developers, artists, and then requires another army of interstitial layers of bureaucracy between, you know, the corporate CEO motherfuckers and this insane pack of, you know, a thousand wolves that you have designing and developing allegedly the next best game ever. Um, They need another army to wrangle the army of the developers and shit. Then you need enormous promotion budgets. Although these days you don't really need that. What I'm trying to tell you is all of this broke. This entire model broke. It, it's not that when I say broke, it, I don't mean that like it came crashing down in a, you know, like the, the pillars of the temple or like the library at Alexandria. I mean, it broke in that what I thought had become a fully entrenched, monopolized, concerted, multinational conglomerate scale effort to really bilk and make the most money out of anyone who likes video games ostensibly and to make them stupider in the process, all the while denigrating the actual artistic medium itself to like the worst levels that's what broke and the thing that broke it for me I mean there's there's cracks in the dam over the last 8 years but it wasn't really until Steam until, until Valve threw its weight behind Linux and Steam that I began to see and participate in a software ecosystem in a game in terms of like you know video games, the software ecosystem that not only felt like an even playing field across all parties meaning, you know, an independent two-person developer could on Steam suddenly compete directly with and without any untowards disadvantage, untoward disadvantage of uh, you know, not having access to the supply chains, relationships business structures core capital um, intellectual uh, you know brain power etc all of a sudden it was a meritocracy again and I've seen over these five years that we've done the podcast um, so many amazing games done by incredibly small developers who prior to Steam, not necessarily Steam adopting Linux, but that was when I became really fully involved um, in observing what was going on with Steam again. But uh, all of a sudden, it was a meritocracy again, and it was a many-voiced, multi... Yeah, not multi... Uh, it was a many-voiced egalitarian approach that made projects that were completely impossible you know, six, seven months, you know, prior seem entirely practical for almost any developer with a good idea and, you know, the will to 
the it's a difficult job, especially as an indie. Whereas prior to that, I had spent at least eight years covering what I regarded as the decline and fall of the what I thought sadly was going to be the high point of the early birth of the real medium of the electronic video game in the modern sense. And all of that has been dispelled over my years doing uh, this podcast. Why do I mention this? One moment. Hang on, we're going to take a pause for whiskey because we're, we're going to return to the subject now. When you've seen the fortunes and expectations and outcomes of rising and falling corporations, uh, developers' personalities, uh, small companies, etc. rise and fall over the long patterns of time once you have enough of enough time to see enough of it you, you become attuned to moments like, oh, I need to start the best links games podcast because now there's going to be enough of a market just in terms of games that are now suddenly playable for a general consumer based interest although it we we you know we're talking to a tiny crowd here we're like a microscopic mouse fart of a subsection of a you know but that's okay cuz so are we you know i would we're all we're all on the same page here but it, it was a moment. I was like, oh, well, now there's going to be... I, I, I should... I, someone's got to cover this, and we should do a podcast. And I know it's going to bust my ass every week, but we'll do a weekly podcast covering the best games available for the new slash link that system. And that meant really, really refocusing. Um, I've been out of... I've been out of games journalism for like three years or more. Uh, yeah, three years and change before I started this podcast. Uh, and I was not eager to return to game journalism, but because of of this sense of you know really really depressing, I had a really really depressing outlook that was factual, accurate, supported by the evidence, and um, you know et cetera. But people did not want to read about that stuff at the time, and so when I took my break from game journalism, it was a much needed one. But I saw when Steam, when Valve adopted Linux for Steam, I was like, this is huge. This is momentous. It was the same way that I felt uh, when the uh, original 8-bit NES came out. The same way I felt when um, the Atari Jaguar came out. And I mentioned that exclusively by virtue of the fact that I have the worst, well, traditionally, I have the worst track record of being the early adopter for terrible, 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 catastrophic vaporware, unbelievably expensive systems. I had a 32X. I had an Atari Jaguar. I was also an investor in Atari. I was like 13. Um, I, 
I had a I had a Sega CD. I was one of the all zero people that you've ever heard their voice in your entire life. I owned a Sega CD and a 32X and a Dreamcast and a Jaguar. But anyway, you see these things and over time, ostensibly, you get some degree of wisdom, which is why I want to talk to you about Google Stadia and why I think it might matter more to you than you otherwise had spared the time to consider. That's the best way of describing it. What is it? Google Stadia will ship it will ship on ship slash become activated go live um, November of this year according to Google on the 6th. What is it? Well, just like it's physical manifestation, Google Stadia is just a normal dual stick controller. It's a wireless dual stick controller. That's what it looks like in terms of physical reality. It's only other physical component is the requirement at least for the first year before they roll it out across all devices meaning that it is going to be device agnostic eventually. That is absolutely the plan and is not a point from which I can foresee them deviating at all because that's the goal. It is the only other physical component is a uh, uh, HDMI dongle that plugs into your TV similar to the Chromecast stick but this is called Chromecast Ultra 4K. And it looks like um, a Roku in about size. I, I haven't seen, I haven't actually looked at the dimensions. I've just seen um, line art drawings of it. It looks like a, a small Frisbee. And that gets plugged into your HDMI. And that is the entirety of what Stadia is. The Chromecast Ultra 4K dongle, we've seen it before. Same principle as a you know, chrome stick or fire stick or whatever the fuck. You know, nothing new there, right? And as for, like, it's amazing other physical manifestation component, yeah, it looks like a generic twin stick from any time in the last 15 years. It's nothing to write home about. There's no virtual reality set up for it. There's no blinking lights. It does not suck your dick. It doesn't, you know, blah, blah, blah. So what does it do? And why should you care? We're not going to talk any more about the FOSS aspect of it, by the way. That part is done. But this is, I think this has the potential, and I mean this, I spent a lot of time thinking about this and I can see this move as having the potential to completely reshape not just the edifice of the game industry not just like you know the um, major power structures of the game industry but it, it, it could it could be the biggest thing that's happened in the game industry itself since the Nintendo Entertainment System in the 80s in America, getting launched in America. That was, you know, enormous. And here's why. Forget all the technical shit. We'll talk more about that later. 
you know, we this might be two hours. I I don't know. We we fifteen minutes seems like a lot to cram in the nine pages of sketchbook um, notes that I've done to present this this talk. But let's get let's get down to brass tacks. Google Stadia is. I'm not sure if it runs off of the Play Store, if that's where you're going to buy the games or not. But if that's not where you're going to buy the games, there'll be something like the Google Play Store that Google will roll out. It's just been very difficult to get to get any concrete details about where you will get your games for Google Stadia. But here's what it does. As, as Joe Jogimon Kendall and I used to say, the funniest thing about a magic trick as a magician is it's not a trick at all. It's just... I mean, because you're the magician, you know what's going to happen next. You have to make the audience understand slash anticipate, be able to you know, kind of see or hint at that that roadmap that's in your mind, that's your secret, that's your power as a magician. Google Stadia's entire um, reveal on the 6th, you know, two days ago, is a lot like that magic trick. Because unless... Unless you have the audience with you, if they can't follow what the fuck it is you're supposed to accomplish, this is like the worst thing that can happen to a close-up card magician. If you devise a trick that no matter how unfucking believable it is, and no matter how technically insane and impossible it is for you to pull off, learned, practiced, invented, and yes, yeah, so we just did that backwards. You know, so flip that list around. Um, if the audience doesn't understand that the card that you're going to produce is like the Jack of Clubs, or if they don't understand like how this was remarkable, it is like the deafening silence after the end of the nuclear apocalypse for the magician. That is kind of the response that Google Stadia, I think, has gotten post its release announcement because what Google Stadia does it just sounds so crazy to even formulate this sentence in my mind if Google Stadia had a mission statement it is this Google Stadia will forever remove the concept of owning a dedicated piece of computing hardware be it uh a console like the Xbox or PlayStation 27 or Xbox One or Super Famicom or, you know, whatever, or a computer that is really dedicated to gaming for fans of AAA gaming ever again. Let me repeat that. And I'm, I'm now writing, you know, this is not from Google. This is, but this is this is a, a good distillation of what Google Stadia is going to do. Google Stadia will make if you're a game fan, if you're a super hardcore game fan, you play 
you know, you you live at GameStop and you buy every, you know, I'm presuming that you're 13 to 18. Your whole life is video games. You live at GameStop and, you know, the day before, you, you spend so much time there that the day before the street date is when you get your copy directly from the manager, you know, regardless of embargo, because you are such a VIP. If you're that into gaming, well, guess what? You don't need a computer anymore and you don't need a console to play those games. That gaping silence right there should underscore how insanely humongous this could be. Let's take a theoretical tour of the game industry. You know, I have not looked at my fucking notes yet this entire time. We're going to go two hours. I promise no longer, but stay with me here, okay? Because what Google is proposing, well, not just what they're proposing, what they are doing, what they have done. And by the way, everything that we talk about for the rest of this, you know, conversation does presuppose that everything works as they say it's going to work. And I'll, I'll tell you why I am comfortable-ish making that assumption. Never assume makes an ass out of you and me. But in this instance, I mean, this is, this is something to give you pause and deserving of deeper thought. So Google is saying... Oh, by the way, not only will, will you no longer require any sort of hardware to play the latest and greatest video games. I mean, the best. Like, literally. And we'll we'll get to why I say that. Because the more you dig into this, the crazier the implications of this become. Let's take a tour of the game industry. Okay, just in broad strokes. The game industry is interwoven with like the technology industry. So you got technology, hardware, media, and telco. All of which intersect in the game industry. Because second... Well, game industry is number one and always has been. Second place has always been porn. Third place has always been accounting. Um, for as long as I've been, as long as I've walked the earth, that has been a mortal truth, a mortal certainty. Sure is gravity, death, and taxes. So, major forces in the game industry right now. Major corporate players, major major players in the intersection between tele- telecommunications infrastructure media publishing, and we'll call it like web services. And by web services, I mean like, you know, all the intermediary shit that now every 18-year-old, you know, actually, if you're like, what's the internet? They would point to like Google and say, that's the internet. They'd point to Facebook and say, that's the internet. They'd point to Twitter and say, that's the internet. Snapchat, that's the internet, you know. It's not the internet. But all of those are like, and become so interwoven and important in our actual lives through our smartphones that even the most studied and recalcitrant Luddite fucking Christ is like in a cave with a shotgun and a beard that like he can wipe his ass with, you know, still knows like, oh yes, I have to check my Gmail. 
You know, like they know what, you know what I'm saying? So that's the internet. They know that that is the internet. What Google is proposing with Stadia would sound insane if it was any other company other than Google. And I'm going to explain why. So, fortunes of the video game industry have been changing, especially over these last three years. Very much in flux. Uh, due to, you know, democratization of the actual marketplace, the, the elimination of uh, basically any technical knowledge or understanding required by the end user. Um, Steam has been a huge part of this. Humble Bundle has been a huge part of this. But really, Steam is, you know, we'll just focus on Steam as an example. And more specifically, the last, you know, mm, God, last three years have really seen the rise of game publishers and, and developers and, you know, other people understanding and appreciating the importance and value added to the entire streaming marketplace. When was it Microsoft or Amazon who bought Twitch? I can't remember. But when that happened, I thought it was the stupidest thing I ever heard. Of course, back then I wasn't on Twitch, nor did I watch Twitch. It was a brilliant fucking move because Twitch if you're if you're a software developer or publisher, we're talking like on like the, you know, the big boy behemoth level, like if you're EA, if you're if you are you know, a subsidiary of a multinational media corporation like Warner Brothers or Time Warner or whatever the fuck, then that means that you are a corporate entity floating around in what is essentially the biggest monopoly since the robber barons controlled the railroads uh, in uh, the old West in America. Um, because one part of your humongous multi-tentacled organization controls all the fiber wire and exchanges and network infrastructure uh, and, and, and the cable companies you know, blah, that bring the internet and your TV and all media and all hope and love and life and joy and also Donald Trump tweets and nightmare hellish fucking two girls one cup and it's everything. They control that aspect of it and then they have another arm like, uh, you know, uh, uh, that does news like the way CNN is, you know, CNN, Disney, and it's all one fucking company. So if you combine a media company with a a multinational media company, like, I mean, world-class media company, like CNN, or, you know, I love CNN, by the way. Yeah, big, I'm not, I'm not, this does not involve a conspiracy theory either. This is just fucking simple economics. And this is the way all of this has been working for the last 20 years, and it's been disgusting. It's been the fucking George W. Bush administration that really allowed this to happen and really urged it on and it is dangerous for all of us as free thinking individual citizens ostensibly operating in a representational democracy but we're not going to talk about those elements we're talking about pure economics here if you were Big Boss Jones and we're in a video game and it is you know the year 1998 and you have you know 80 million dollars. Okay. 
The game's called Telco Media Monopoly Game. Okay, it's a great title. I think it'll sell billions. What is your first goal? Your first goal is to control it as much and as many, as much of the mark, as much of the telecommunications infrastructure and etc. in as many markets as you can, both geographically and by uh, you know actual number of end users and and paying subscribers. Next phase of the game would be well what once you get that locked down, once you're like Cox Communications or whoever the fuck um whoever, you know, gives you your cable, your internet service provider, what would be the next step? Well, the next step, I mean, you know, we're thinking blue skying here, it's a wet dream spitball whiteboard universe that we're living in. Well, what would be the next step? Well, I want to be ruler of the universe and, you know, control time and space and never die. Okay, that's not in the game. Next step would be, well, I already control all the fiber, cable, and telecommunication infrastructure, which is now thriving, because now let's say it's, you know, 2012 or whatever. Not that it matters, it's kind of period agnostic. The next step would be, I want to not just own the means of transmission that I'm overcharging for and and uh, underperforming in terms of my, you know, promised my my promise to the the services I promised to the to provide to the end user. You know, like oh, ninety nine percent uptime with you know four thousand megabytes of fucking <laughs> oh, this is the fire hose that you bitches have been waiting for. Anyway, you already control all that. You own all of it. In fact, you also own aspects of the real telephone capital T infrastructure as well, which you you know either subcontract out, you know, blah blah blah, with like AT and T and etc. You are jacked in, you are hooked up, and you have a fucking team of lobbyists that is like you know thirty guys strong, each of which you pay at least a million dollars a year, and they are they have you know. All of Congress licking their licking right up the bunghole. Yeah, you know, oh, I gotta tell you, Joe, my my uh, Joe Pesci is pretty terrible, but oh, she's got a great ass. She's got a great ass. You should know. You got your head all the way up. It. <coughs> so that's where we are at phase two. All right, well, that's where we are at the end of phase one. So what do we want phase two to be? We don't just want to control the um, actual lines and, you know, in, in a railroad perspective, we don't, we don't just want to control the actual railroads and the shipping rights, you know, analogous to the internet and data flowing through fiber and copper wire, <laughs> which I was on for so many years, and etc. We want to control the software infrastructure for it. We want to control and aggregate, conglomerate, and uh, not aggregate. We, we we want to conglomerate. We want to we want to acquire all of the best services that are running on there. And so, what are those services? Well, there's social media, there's stock, there's business logic, there's email, 
and then there's back of office uh, type of enterprise data manipulation shit there's porn there's video games there's video there's news and there's media all of this becomes media we want to then buy the movie studio then we want to buy another movie studio we want to buy all those best smaller movie studios that we can find as fast as we can find them that are good and that we can afford and if we can't afford it we will fucking trust me we're a multinational you know psionic company at this point that is how you get not just a monopoly but like a a legit so far we've been lucky that it hasn't fully morphed into the completely uh, dystopian that's the word the completely dystopian outcome that if we are not careful I, I'm surprised that it hasn't happened already probably more or less it actually has already happened I mean Trump's the president we were fucked over by social media and manipulating um, online advertisements using you know Facebook and you know the common tools of the trade. So, blah. And we also have an alternate reality um, fucking state propaganda machine with a business model that is exclusively to spin, not just to spin, but to literally lie under the banner of being serious, factual, accurate um, news, news and journalism in the form of Fox News, which has success succeeded in convincing anywhere between, you know, 30 to maybe 42% of our country in shit that is simply not true and is, when I say not true, I mean is absolutely, irrefutably, factually, fucking straight up lies. So yeah, maybe we are at that dystopian point already. The bottom line is this. Phase three, then, would be we need to grow our market. So, in the way Amazon did this was they started selling Kindles for basically free because they want to control your access point in terms of like a consolidated store that makes you into a single consumer who consumes these types of media exclusively through this device. And that device... Who runs that device? We do. Amazon does. Where does the money go? To Amazon. Which is great. I'm not, I'm not saying that that any aspect of this is, you know, morally repugnant, although it is been a subject of, of you know, real queasy, vertiginous um, sinking feelings and bad outlooks for the future for me uh, personally for at least the last 10 years ever since uh, really uh, the Kindle came out blah so then what happens what's phase 4 you know we, we roll out we, we try to integrate further into everyone's life with our services that are our walled gardens for revenues that we've contracted out to to media companies or our subsidiaries because we're a subsidiary of a multi look at Disney Time Warner I mean, they. So if you own the means of production, you own the entertainment that everyone wants to buy, 
you own the way in which it is delivered to them in terms of like tele telecommunications infrastructure, fiber, etc. You roll out products that further help introduce them and addict them to the gateway drug of your service, like the Kindle. I have I I'm on my eighth Kindle, I think. And I have an iPad Pro on which I do all the the rundowns for this show, which you know, blah. So I'm, you know, what would be the next step? The next step, obviously, as last you know three years have shown us, is subscription services. Netflix pioneered this, and I thought they were fucking stupid. Like you know, nine years ago, eight years ago, I thought they were so stupid. I'm like this is just the worst idea I have ever heard. Haven't you guys ever been to Blockbuster? Guess what? Blockbusters are gone. Netflix not only controls ooh, a humongous portion of that market in terms of subscription base, people who like to stream stuff, movies in particular. But ever since, you know, the I guess maybe it was the first or second year of a uh, Jupiter Broadcasting's tech snap with Alan Jude and the dark overlord uh, Chris Fisher. Um, Chris, uh, Alan Jude would constantly, like at least once every three to four quarters, so about every year, would go into the amount of infrastructure in terms of telecommunications infrastructure. We're talking storage. We're talking transmission speed. So we're talking data centers and then laying cable. Um, and where they could not lay cable, they got involved with getting whoever was involved in the ability to lay cable to lay the cable. And they they looked at the country and they sliced us up. And really, it is the most sophisticated. Well, it was for a long time. I, I you know I haven't kept up with it too much lately. But the idea was, well, we have ZFS arrays everywhere. We run BSD for everything. There are, you know, it's not just a data center because we have to beat the laws of physics. It's not just a data center in Chicago or Los Angeles or Las Vegas or outside of New York. What we've done is we, we have built a syndication infrastructure that allows us to stream at, you know, unheard of resolutions. And this is before 4K to unthinkable amounts of people, and we've done it using free and open source software, little network engineering, BSD, and uh, ZFS, and uh, a really, really good business plan. That type of load, that type of infrastructure, it's one of the reasons why I really want to fucking invest in Netflix, uh, now that I've been, you know, fucking around with the stock market, it's that even if, the entire market for streaming anything goes away tomorrow and Netflix has to like literally sell off all of its assets and infrastructure and you know like the pens pencils the burnt out light bulbs and you know their entire uh telco um telco sites and linkages that they own and etc or have controlling interests in the money from just selling that skeleton of Netflix is going to be fantastically I mean it's not something that's going to grow in profit naturally 
But like, I mean, you know, the whole world could stop tomorrow in terms of Netflix if I were an investor and I would still be happy because they're going to liquidate the company and, it, you know, they'll they'll be, not amortized, they'll be uh, gobbled up by Time Warner or, you know, by whomever. Um, they're not going away just by virtue of the amount of hardware infrastructure and, uh, yeah, tele focused telecommunications and storage that they have running running for them. It's on a level the likes of which only the NSA more the NSA blows everybody away, but that's a nation state actor, so you know advanced threat. But anyway, bottom line is this: if Instead of Stadia, if instead of Google coming out with Stadia, replace the word Google, the, the, the company named Google, Google Alphabet, place that with Seth's Great Games as the subject line of the email press release that you're going to blast the media. Seth's Great Games announces rollout of new Stadia. Uh, service. I would not put service there because no one likes to read that because that says subscription and that turns everyone off. But that's what it is. But but the point is, just take out Google and put Joe Bob's Joe Bob and Joe Bob's Games announces new Stadia project to drop in November 2019. No one's going to give a flying fuck. I think that people have also failed to give enough of a flying fuck when the name in front of Stadia is not Microsoft, is not Joe Bob's, Billy Bob's fuckwad, is not your dad's garage hobby developers, isn't homebrew are we, isn't, you know, the Tux Master uh, Grand Inquisitor forms of game development, isn't canonical, isn't even... Uh, Wells Fargo, Bank of America. When it is Google announces Stadia to launch in November, this changes everything. Brief anecdote. I know we only have like 15 more minutes. I'm sorry. I'm having... I Bear with me. Brief anecdote. Forever ago, uh, uh, for Jupiter Broadcasting, I can't remember if it was uh, TechSnap or Linux Action Show or whatever. I used to be in the chat room a lot. And uh, during one of the breaks, Popey, Alan Pope from Canonical, uh, the subject at hand for the previous segment or the next segment that was coming up was going to be all about uh, Google Android and its relationship uh, to free and open source software as it began to really start hitting, I think it was the when they started to really start hitting on the Play Store and stuff, but it doesn't matter Popey in chat said something that was jaw-dropping and stunning to me back then and really changed the way I think about computing it was very simple I don't care, you know, who owns Android you know, it could be Google, could be all of us, it could be free and open source, it could be a committee, it could be a not-for-profit, it could be anything. 
But right now, here's where it stands, mates. And uh, by the way, Alan Pope is not just like, a, you know, a legendary you know, f- pillar of the community, both corporate and community-wise in terms of free and open source software, uh, post-Ubuntu and Canonical. He's, I mean, he's widely respected, but, you know, he's, it's not just, you know, it could be anybody. It could be a not-for-profit, it could be a committee, it could be, you know, whatever. But the bottom line, mates, is that, and I think it was, God damn it, I can't remember the exact number, but it was something like 1.8 billion people own Android phones. And here's where I'll never forget. Next thing he said was, and that is too much for any single person, any single corporate entity, any any human being from a business, from a moral, from a socio uh, economic, you know, you want to get back to the community kind of, from any perspective, 1.8 billion of anything is in terms of like a critical constantly used the foundation of their world, 1.8 billion of anything is too much for any company to control. And it's not by let's say we live in Westphalia, let's say we live in you know an idyllic paradisical fucking fancy hypothetical world in which there is no evil, no greed everyone does everything for the right reasons and this was the thing, this was Popey's main point about Android and Google at the time, and this was years and years and years ago even if you're acting in the best possible good faith and hope to change the world to bring about a, a utopia but only in piecemeal, you know, you can have the best intentions on the face of the planet and be the most moral human being and be the most wise individual to walk the planet. You can be everything short of omniscient and the greatest genius on that humanity has ever produced and it is still too much to be controlled by one person because the unintended consequences of anything on that scale are just unthinkable. They're, they're really unthinkable. I mean, imagine if, and that was, you know, we spent like an hour talking about this in chat after that show was over. And he's so right. I mean, just imagine, I mean, there's like what, 6 billion, 6.8 billion people on earth. Imagine if 1.8 billion of those people suddenly lost cell phone servers or even worse, all 1.8 billion of them all got different flavors of the same, uh, you know, Putin developed uh, fucking ultimate fucking uh, rootkit worm kind of thing that just subtly changed what was on their news feeds. Then imagine, and you don't know, we notice that. Then imagine, you know, three weeks or nine months or 10 years or whenever the fuck the moment is right. Instead of you know, things just being subtly changed or lurking in the background and being completely, you know, chill. All of a sudden, bam, it's time. Everyone gets the same news story from CNN, you know, uh, Donald Trump uh, privatizes entire automotive industry by fiat or something else like that. 
instantaneously. The economic world in which we live in isn't just changed, it is plunged into fucking dark age level Stygian horrendous darkness. And the amount of wealth and you know, you know, all the shit that gets wiped out will get wiped. Anyway, so what I'm trying to impress upon you with this portion of the Stadia discussion is that Google, I have some numbers for you. And, you know, I am resistant to the big evil company, to the big multinational conglomerate monopoly that makes its, the customers that's supposed to serve its slaves and etc. But I'm a fucking economic realist and I'm a computer scientist and I understand how the world works. And how computers work. So, like, don't mistake my... Don't mistake me in tone here. I'm not trying to make... There are no good guys or bad guys in this. There are, however, amazing implications. Google. How big is Google? I'm going to give you three numbers involving market capitalization. Well, no, actually involving uh, 2018 net revenue. Hang on, where is it? God damn it, I had it right here. Everything with a dollar sign next to it is not the right dollar sign. Okay. The entire game industry in 2018 was was worth, in total, I think this is gross, $135 billion. Alphabet slash Google, its profit for the 2018 fiscal year was $30 billion net. Microsoft's profit for 2018 net $16.5 billion. We all know that Google is I would say there's only like three companies, there's five companies in the entire world that could do what Google says will launch in November. The first is the United States government. The second is Democratic fucking People's Republic of China. The third is net, uh, well, the third is Google. But if you want to organize these via like biggest priority, it would go USG, China, Amazon, Amazon's data centers and infrastructure and cloud computing enormous. Then Netflix then, or then Google, then Netflix, then maybe Microsoft, maybe Microsoft, maybe. But Microsoft is like, all the other choices on that list, infinitely better chances of success at doing any of this than Microsoft. What I'm saying here is, Google, in preparation for launching Stadia, Google has all the resources in the world. Google can buy anything. Google is like an advanced persistent threat on a nation-state actor level. You know, if they want you, if the NSA wants you, they are, does not matter how many precautions, you know, how technically accurate, how excellent your security program, how secret you, how what encrypt does not 
matter. If they want you, they will get you. Because they have uh, they have limitless resources, both monetarily, legally, politically, and and um, as well as technically in terms of like technical brain power. Google is the exact same way. So when Google says that this November for $129 this is, that's the advanced package for Stadia that includes a controller, a Chromecast Ultra, you know, dongle that's that's how it all runs on your TV that's all you need, you will never need another computer or console or specific device you'll never need to buy one of those again for playing the top AAA titles. And, shockingly enough, guess what? When Google farts, when Google sneezes, mountains crumble into the sea. When Google picks up the phone, you believe me, buddy, on the other end of that line, that person, I don't care if they are the President of the United States or the president of the moon, or, you know, Bill Gates, or, you know, Jesus H. fucking Christ on a pogo stick himself, when Google makes that call, all of the above, absolutely answer on the first ring, and sweat bullets each successive second of the interaction, and are more than happy to help, or and or partner with or serve you know in any you know whatever you know uh, you know fashion it is not the same paradigm as when uh, Valve adopted uh, Linux for Steam OS or whatever no Google makes Valve which is like I think the largest gaming community and uh, uh, integrated reseller client you know blah in the universe Google makes Valve and Steam look like a taco truck in terms of scale. So when Google says over the you know previous months leading up to this announcement, we have partnered and made arrangements, some for individual titles and others. You know, it's not like we can read the contracts and I've, I've been trying to get into the nitty-gritty details with the following developers and publishers. This is when this was a secret. Google has lined up where the... God damn it, hang on. I have it here. Google has already set up relationships with uh, the following AAA title developers, publishers, and you know, video game multinational media conglomerate entities. Electronic Arts, Square Enix, Bethesda, Rockstar, Ubisoft, Warner Brothers, and Sega. Initially, there'll only be 31 titles at launch available. 
If you're telling me that you think that there is a reasonable chance that if the technical aspects of this entire rollout work, if you're telling me that you think that there's like above um, an 8% chance that if this all works, that the at the start of the next fiscal quarter, that every single major developer will either be press-ganged, coerced, or willingly jump on the Google bandwagon. I mean, it's possible. I do not. It is. It's. It's. It. It. It, it, it beggars. It beggars. You know, my sense of reason. It. It. it it's. It's possible, but it, it, it's not going to happen. What I am trying to impress upon you is that this streaming service, which does not have an operating system, does not need a computer. For the first year, what they're saying is that it rolls out uh, only to Chromecast Ultra, so it goes to your TV if you have a Chromecast Ultra. Um, laptops, and uh, desktop computers and also the Google Pixel 3. But uh, over the the course of the year after the rollout, it will become agnostic. They've already they're they've already set up relationships with Apple for iPhone and and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Google is not fucking around with this. And the reason why this should concern you is when someone who has more money, more connections, more of a foothold, so much of a foothold that they are like the cornerstone, part of the cornerstone, part of the fucking skeletal structure of the economy and of, you know, the entire computer science and, you know, uh, information sector at large when someone like this who has limitless resources announces something like this and says that they've already rolled out the infrastructure for it because the the, the idea of Stadia is that it is, there's no more operating system, it's just the game the operating system and the game are live streamed to you in 4K at 60 frames per second. Now, of course, there is a major technical caveat there in that, you know, it depends on where you live and how good your ISP is and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera to really make that happen. But word anyone else, I would say, oh, this is going to be a disastrous idea. But this is Google. That means that and Google is fucking pissed away more money on shit that they've purchased that were humongously popular services and immensely profitable, well not immensely profitable, but you know humongously valuable, like Picasso or yeah, right, yeah right, and you know uh, they get tired of it, they let it rot on the shelf Google is rolling out billions and billions and billions of dollars and they've already done that to accomplish this goal. They want Netflix of video games. Now, what does that mean for, you know, the entire game industry? Well, when consoles are no longer part of the market, which is 
a conceivable reality within the next 18, no, within the ne- I would say within the next 24 months if Google is successful at this. And guess what? Google is successful at whatever the fuck they are interested in for as long as they are interested in it. This gives them exposure to the biggest, most profitable sector of the consumer electronic uh, universe, the market. It's video gamers are the 18 to 30, it's a perfect demo. Perfect. It also gives them, gives them a great foothold to compete against in the coming stream wars because Microsoft is also launching a counter um, or it's thinking about launching a service that's similar. Amazon as well. There have been rumors that they are floating a similar blah. But here's the deal. First to market, first to fucking payday. And none of those other companies can leverage pressure on every single developer and publisher. And that's just from like getting the video game side of it. So what does this look like in like, let's say two and a half years? Can you imagine a world in which, and I can easily see this, because I've seen it happen with uh, Linux games on Steam. If they make this work from a technical perspective, and I th- and Google has the resources, the techn- technical know-how, and the planning, and I, this is just a brilliant move on every level, they will make it work. These are the people who brought you Google Earth. Your entire fucking navigational life, if you are under 30, has been predicated almost entirely by Google. Google does not fail. I mean, yes, they fail. They they fuck shit up. I'm not saying that Google is like, you know, I'm not, you know, like some people are like cult of Apple worshippers and stuff like that, you know, regardless of whatever technical pedigree they may or may not have or you know imagine that they possess you know whatever like there's just some people who just love apple and like will just you know down on all knees you know knob gobbling the apple cock regardless of whatever half-baked shitty rehash of whatever it was that they did five years ago that they're putting out again for the second time this year. You know, those people, I'm not one of those for Google. I'm not one of those for anything except for Linux itself. For the, for FOSS and the, the FOSS idiosphere, that I'm a, uh, that's why I have Linux tattooed on my fucking arm. So don't mistake me, but I, what, what I'm I'm not saying that everything that Google touches turns to gold. I'm not saying that it is beyond the, uh, the, uh, realm of of, uh, possibility that a massively um, uh, a behemoth both financially and in terms of intellectual brain power and in terms of uh, influence, reach, political and um, political and industrial I'm not saying that it's beyond the realm of comprehension that such a behemoth might fail at any given endeavor at any given time Google is not fucking around with this, though. Google will not fail at this. Because this is going to make Google so much fucking money. Everyone will fall in line behind them if they bring this off. And it is not technically impossible. Um, It is difficult to, you know, imagine that they can ensure and they're not trying to make that claim that they can ensure every Stadia 
subscriber, which by the way, um, for the first year, it's $10 a month. The $129 pre-order includes three months of that subscription for free along with, um, you get to pick your username and you get a, a, a friend license that you can give to a friend that gives them three months of Stadia access as well. Um, along with the controller and the Chromecast Ultra 4K dongle. But that's it. Think about how big a change this will be. Because what this reshapes, if this works, this doesn't just reshape like the game industry, it reshapes the hardware industry. And causes for concern, as always, are evil, bad intention, or negligent, or whatever uh, type of corporate actors exploiting their marketing, their their size, scale, and ability to do business on you know, consolidated levels of commerce that uh, defy, you know, the imaginations of most normal human beings turn suddenly evil or just slowly over, like, the entropic hours, weeks, months, years, and eventually decades uh, slowly devolves into the evil empire. That's why you don't want any monopolies like this. But think about just imagine this. I'll leave you with this thought. Imagine two and a half years. And all of this, by the way, is running on open source, free and open source software, which is a separate hilarious conversation that we will have in the days and, well, in the weeks to come, I imagine. But just imagine this. Let me just give you a snapshot of one incredibly feasible future outcome of this. Flash forward. It is 20... 2022 September, November 2022, right? 20, yeah, 2022. It's a lot of twos. It's gonna be interesting, but anyway, it's it's you know two and a half years from now. GameStop is no longer in business. There are no more consoles to sell. It survives exclusively in an online form along with having been bought up by Walmart and folded into many Walmart locations as part of their electronics department. Principally, their entire uh, product line, games, GameStop or whatever the fuck, they no longer sell consoles. They no longer sell games. They basically sell controllers, peripherals, and cabling. Steam survives much as it is now. But imagine if Google wanted want to put the squeeze on everything on on the industry because this is they're going to be first to market with this. And if it works, they're going to be able to write their own rules, punch their own tickets and dictate to both the market as well as the publishers any terms that they desire no matter how rapacious or unreasonable so it is not inconceivable that if this is a success at the market in 2020 you know two and a half years 
no longer looks at all like at all the game industry that that we know as it is today. It'll look like a a, a trifurcated is that's even a word. It'll be broken into like three prismatic parts, all of which correspond to the developers who have signed up hopefully not with exclusivity agreements but that's the way of the future to whichever feudal lord whose services they license their games for there will no longer be a a supply chain at all for video games nor will there be for actual consoles devoted exclusively to gaming gaming hardware as we know it will cease to exist it will take a huge chunk out of computer gaming most the thing that I am most fascinated to see how it shake how it shakes out the biggest development is whether or not Google will try to bring in line like a strong man which is what I would do if we were Google and evil and didn't care about you know but anyway and there's lots of different ways that this could shake out but this is a very real possibility is what I'm telling you they use their leverage their size their contacts their intellectual um, depth and their sheer monetary resources infrastructure connections and uh, you know core strength is you know the backbone of the industry that powers everything that we know in the modern universe to bring into line developers and publishers exclusively under them. The implications of this for Linux and Steam, uh, you know, gamers are somewhat limited because no matter what they're going to do or what they can do, there will be a way that we will find around it if it is pernicious, problematic, and or repugnant to us in any way. That's what we do. We find the way around. We'll reverse engineer it. We'll fucking, you know. And we and the worse the problem is, the greater the demand among the community, the better and better we get. Um, we are a steamroller. Might not move fast, but we will pave over you. That's what the FOSS idiosphere is. So the implications of that would be somewhat less severe for Steam and Linux gamers because like, I don't give a fuck about Bethesda. I can't remember if it was last week's episode or the week before that, but I think I said, fuck you, Bethesda, literally a dozen times. Naturally, in the course of a single broadcast. I don't give a fuck about Bethesda, but these are what everyone else, these are the games that everyone else cares about. Bethesda does Fallout. Electronic Arts does fucking Call of Duty 99 and whatever fucking half-baked, dumbed-down FPS backwards-looking de-evolutionized pap they're spitting out at any fucking given week of any given fiscal quarter. Um, Square Enix, I've never been that big of a Final Fantasy. All of these things, the principle of is still important though um, and Warner Brothers can suck my balls after they promised Linux release of that Batman game and then failed not to just deliver on that on day one, week one, month one, but
also fail to deliver a working game for any users of any operating system on any computing hardware platform etc and then like just like uh, fuck you guys that's what Warner and fuck Warner Bros and what other games have they made recently well you'd be surprised all of these fucking major 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 multi huge co conglomerate fucking media and dev and publishing companies are all interstitially linked it's like they're all fat cells like the same big band of fat or something I don't know and oh by the way I'm so fucking glad that Sega inked the deal to supply titles to Stadia because we all know that ever since the Dreamcast I've been madly in love with Sega and it's passionate devotion to providing first class electronic entertainment gaming software titles for our nation's youth oh yes they've never fucked me over have they so that stuff doesn't apply to us but if this is the shape of things to come this is going to be enormous and we're at any other company I would say meh we'll see what happens but this is Google and the only way Google ever stops doing anything that they've spent already spent this much time, money, planning, um, resources, brain power, organization, and you know, this is like an all hands on deck thing that's been happening in silence from the upgrading of the infrastructure that they that they didn't really have. Like, I mean, they've added. You should see the tech specs for all the data centers, data centers that they have brought or bring online for Stadia. It is nuts, and it's distributed, which is, all of this makes sense to me. Things that don't make such technical sense are like the, you know, being, oh, one other thing, integrated into the Stadia experience, quote-unquote. That means, like, integrated into, like, you know, you turn on your TV, you press the button on your controller, there's no other box. There is no copy of a game. You're streaming an operating system and a game to you, 4K, 60 frames per second, and allegedly optimized to have overhead to spare to simultaneously live stream without any hardware on your end to YouTube a la Twitch straight through Stadia with literally the um you know the the Xbox button on the uh Xbox controller you know the one that like lights up and stuff and glows and press it and it doesn't do anything like generally in Linux that button literally starts a live stream of you to YouTube you have to pay for the games and you have to buy them uh I think through the, everything that I've come to understand says Google Play Store is where this is going but I can't uh, back that up with um, any factual reportage from any reputable source that uh, is out there right now or at least when I was doing the resource uh, research yesterday for this piece but the bottom line is this could be I think that Google is seeing this and rightly so as them 
creating a new era in which they will control the entire video game market, which is valued at like $136 billion per year, U.S. Because if they control, if they have the... And this is such an appealing thing. It's $129 uh, to pre-order it, allegedly shipping in November. You get the, you know, fucking unimpressive Stadia controller and the new upgraded Chromecast Ultra 4K dongle and three months free of the Stadia service. It's going to be $9.99 per month after that, but they do have they are planning um, post the initial like six to nine months uh, post the initial rollout. They are planning to also offer a free version of Stadia, the service. So you you don't. You, I, I think you won't be able to have like um, a username that isn't like I, I don't know. I don't know all the details, but and that's all in the future. The bottom line is this: if you control the means. Of delivery and control the subscriber base and have limitless resources to pressure the producers of the content themselves into partnership with you regardless of whether they like it or not you will have completely I I can't even contemplate what this will mean or might mean for the, the entire industry the entire video game industry from like a development and product it's it, it could change everything and I think it would probably change everything for the worse just by virtue of consolidation of power into such a giant, you know, humong- humongous, uh, unstoppable behemoth that, you know, money has a life and a mind of its own and absolutely no conscience. Um, so, and it makes me nervous because it, 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 it does represent everything I, I have been so dispirited to see occur over the last, you know, 15 years in terms of, you know, media companies, buying cable companies, buying newspapers, and then buying movie studios, then buying actual um, content creators, you know, publishing houses, um, you know, in terms of games, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But let me give you, uh, I'll leave you with this one hypothetical. If you still do not see how potentially insane this, this could be, and were anyone else but Google, I would say, oh, yeah, whatever. That might happen. Who knows? But this is Google. Google doesn't fuck around. Imagine this. You're 14 years old. You're a 14-year-old kid. I remember what it was like to be 14 years old, although that was during the Lincoln administration. Anyway, you're a 14-year-old kid. You're poor, okay? Your family is poor. Like You are on food stamps, um, you know, you have great parents, but it is fucking hard. The world is hard. You are poor. You're beneath the poverty line. Or, uh, that's actually what we, fuck man. 
anyway, economic inequality in America is out of control, but that, that's a different story. It's You're poor. You're 14 years old. Your birthday's coming up. I almost said your birthday is coming up. What do you write Santa to bring you for your birthday? The answer to which, of course, is you don't write Santa on your birthday. That's why he has never replied. And that's also why you've never gotten a present. Now, um, follow the protocol, kid. Now, it, your birthday's coming up. All of your friends who are like what we used to call middle class, but that's like at the poverty line now. But all your, I mean, you guys have a TV at home. All of your friends, they are, you know, they have, they are much better off than you. They have Xbox Ones. And they got, you know, virtual reality headsets. They have a fucking, you even have, they're the richy riches, okay? Just imagine that. They have, they even have like a custom built Alienware fucking, you know, tower system that runs their 27 display video walls while they play every latest Steam game the second it comes out and the ones that aren't available on Steam, they own three of every type of console that's available and you know they, they, yeah, and they get blowjobs by fucking Steve Jobs and whatever every fucking second. Although that is a horrifying thought as it came out of my mouth, I visually imagined that, and what a nightmare that is! That is that's that's hall of that's hall of fame nightmare fuel right there. Anyway, but you can sometimes play games with them, like but you had like you know the one game that like you had on you know whatever your Nintendo Wii or whatever. Um, no one likes to play that game because it's you know ten years old now. And it's also on the Nintendo Wii. <laughs> oh God, I'm taking this to such terrible dark places. But just imagine this. The year is 2022. 20, You're 14 years old. These are the circumstances. Your birthday's coming up. What are you going to beg your parents to buy you for your birthday? Are you going to ask your beleaguered mom and dad who have loved you since the day you were born and have tried as best as they could to keep you from getting kidnapped, chewed, raped, eaten, shot, burnt alive or um, other catastrophic outcomes that are prone to existence as a human being on life on this earth? Are you going to beg these poor, long-suffering people for an Xbox One that costs $450 that not only do you not have, they do not have. Plus, I can't remember what the uh, Xbox uh, Gold online subscription costs. I still pay it, which is ridiculous. I don't even have a fucking Xbox. <laughs> anyway, um, plus $30 a month or let's say $30 a year on top of that in perpetuity, you're gonna plus games. You're gonna beg them for a thing that costs five hundred dollars, of which you you and your family have exactly twenty five dollars of, 
Or are you going to beg them to spend $129 on a thing that can turn your TV into the equivalent of a distribution and operating system I mean operating system agnostic hardware less triple A video gaming machine that allows you to play with your friends on the latest games from the best biggest okay those two things are not mutually exclusive from the biggest and most popular um, major developers and publishers for $129 I have dyscalculia which means that the most basic aspects of math arithmetic especially are incredibly difficult for me however let me help you with the math here an exponent with you know the the online subscription thing it's roughly $500 that includes one controller you'll need a game so we'll say 600 bucks okay Google Stadia is $129 plus 10 bucks a month. So 120 bucks a year. So we'll say we'll put the price of the Stadia at $250, okay? Plus a game, 300 bucks. That is half of what the Xbox of the Xbone costs. Does not require any additional hardware. You know, like as an investment, you can cancel it at any time. I I'm telling you. I'm going for Google Stadia if I'm that kid. And what does that mean? That means that many kids will go for Google Stadia if they pull this off. And I think they will. The trick is to not, you know, the biggest biggest roadblocks for them would will definitely be uh, end user quality assurance because it does rely entirely on their network connection. But this is an amazing. It's not even a rebalancing. It is a it is a breaking of the industry, as we know it, and I think it deserves a lot more thought. It is either a time to be very excited, or very afraid, or, as I've gotten used to over the last few years of the Trump administration, entirely afraid at all times. Constantly excited. <laughs> In a vertiginous, queasy kind of dread, bleak outlook kind of way. But that's me. I look on the negative. So there we go. Two and a half hours. Jesus Christ. This was a long one. And we didn't even cover all of the stuff I wanted to talk about in terms of the stadia. But we did We did put this in the record book of, you know, if 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 journalism is the rough draft of history 
and then Best Links Games podcast over these 241 weeks um, has become sort of a you know a downgraded like a, a downscale paper of paper of record for this aspect of the industry and this is going to have profound implications unless it is a complete catastrophe from the second they roll it out which it could be but I I think what's going to happen is roll out month one to three about 30% of the people who have by the way I have in the interest of full disclosure I have pre-ordered a Google Stadia because I, I gotta see I, I have to know I have to know and it runs free and open source software of which of course currently at the present moment Google is not giving you any details about nor providing any transparency so it's not really free and open source well it's like free and open source software abused and chained and then enslaved under you know the corporate yoke of an inscrutable multinational master and then spit back out to a broader audience than the original projects would have ever been able to reach under the auspices and marketing budget of a giant multinational computer company but the one way I can see I I think that they're betting on the month one to three about 30% of the people who are early adopters uh, or who who give Google Stadia a try I think that they're betting that 30% will be dissatisfied slash vociferously dissatisfied um, with aspects of the networking performance and etc and I think Google is banking on at least that size of margin which they will they'll file away as edge cases and then look geographically probably using Google Analytics (laughs) or a spreadsheet or a map they will look at where their network is weakest over you know, month one to three, that's where they'll get all the complaints. Then they'll have a data set. Then months, you know, four to 12, they will start filling in those gaps in coverage and other technical shit that involves networking as best as they are able. And I think that ultimately their plan, this is the way I would plan it, would be to be not just like a an alternative thing that's considered by you know the 12 to 25 year old consumer gamer consumer but within you know like 18 to 24 months of their launch date I think that their goal is to look like the only logical thing that anyone would ever buy ever I think if they do this if they if they don't if they don't abandon this project and 
in the show rundown for the in the show blurb for this week's episode, I will link to an article on The Verge where they interviewed the CEO from Google who sounds like he is so balls in on this and that so much effort has gone into this already. This is going to become like a huge portion of Google's um, business portfolio in the future. Like they're planning on this being enormous for them. So I don't think that they're going to let it go. I don't think they're just going to, you know, oh, whatever, like Picasso or what, uh, you know, some other things that they bought, ruined, broken, and then, you know, left in a corner like a rape victim fucking as it weeps being fed subsistence money while it dies like a miserable miserable agonizing self-hating descent into complete stygian darkness and disillusionment and death I don't think they're going to do that with this I think they're playing to win and I think that it is a brilliant move strategically for them as a company. And I think it will, it, I think that the odds are better that it will than better that it won't completely change the entire way we understand the entire game industry. Not just the way we understand it, but the way the game industry itself works. And the outcome of that is what I would be really fascinated to see. Anyway, cheers, that does us for the show. Thank you for sticking with me for all two hours and 45 minutes of it, or two hours and 40 minutes of it. Um, I hope that was some food for thought for you guys. Um, Because I don't think that people have thought this through. I don't think that people have really thought how crazy it is that Google, one of the biggest tech companies in the world, is now entering not into the video game development or publishing business but as the final publisher and they're going to destroy the console game industry and they will be first to market there are some profound implications there so unless it's a complete disaster on you know uh, you know, first three months, I mean a complete disaster unless it's like 90% of everyone can't get anything to fucking work and you know, they start losing partners, that's the thing though, they're not going to start losing their publishers Google will not lose EA, Bethesda anyone that they want they will not lose them because Google is so fucking enormous forgetting like the like the monetary incentives and contractual you know, breaks that they could give in terms of any relationship with any major publisher. Forget about that. They can exert real fucking pressure based exclusively off of the way that Google is inside of every fucking aspect of the internet and the telecommunications industry. Google, you do not want to be the enemy of Google. You do not want, when Google says comes over and says, hey, you want to play ball with me? 
um, Sethco indie developer, whatever, maker of the smash hit Mordow, which sold 1 million copies last year, you're, you, you're fully able to say, you know what, fuck you, I don't like you guys, you guys are, you guys are too big, and you suck, and fuck you, no way. That's not what you say. If you say that, and they really want you, they will fucking buy you. But first, they will spend a year destroying you, using soft power at the corners of your actual business. It's the way of monopolies. And that's that's unnerving and disquieting. But if this works out well, it could be a it could be a entire new era for video games. I mean it. This reshapes everything. If you don't have to buy a console anymore and you don't even need to own a computer and the all the hardware that is required costs less than $130. That sounds like revolution to me. All right. Cheers. Thanks for listening to me, Babel. I'm glad we finally got that off our chest. I will be back next week with more Babel. And uh, also we'll be talking Kingdom Come next week. And uh, oh, yes. And some special surprises that we ourselves are rolling out. Later days. Ivor, get us out of here. A good idea. Four or five times. Hi there. There is delight in doing things right. Four or five times. It is I, E.B. Farnham. Maybe I'll cry. I'll get you a drink. And if I die, I'm gonna cry. Four or five times. Do you like to play? We like to play. I like you. We like to sing. It only runs on Linux. We like to go. Yaddy yaddy yo. Four or five times. We're gonna have such fun. Bebop one. You're becoming hysterical. Bebop two. Yes, sir. Thank you, sir. Bebop three. Yada yada e. Four or five times. Matt Damon. Look what you've done! Trip to the moon is us to walk around the block. We're going to the stars. You little small town of this world, Other civilizations. Mr. Keith. I want this man savagely beaten. Men will be killed in this effort, just as they're killed in cars and airplanes and bars and in bed. What is Are you sure you want to say that, sir? That wasn't good! That wasn't good! And you know me, I don't say nothing! That was terrible! Burn everything incriminating, including this building. Burn all the White House pets, and then yourselves. Burn yourselves first. There is no... Windows version of weaponized chess. Boy, this is fucking ponderous, man. Ponderous, fucking ponderous. It only runs on Linux. It's not a problem. You alienated part of America. I alienated crazy people. I like it very much. It is I, E.B. Farm. You're becoming hysterical. I'm here. I'm there. I'm fucking everywhere. I'm the Eggman. 
The best Linux games podcast is brought to you by Blue Wizard is about to die. Now available for the first time as an ebook on Amazon.com. To subscribe to the podcast using a Linux-based podcatcher like Podracer, or to see our YouTube gameplay videos, please visit www.bestlinuxgames.com. Also, join our Steam community group, Best Linux Games, Friends Cookie Sprite, and follow him on Twitter at VegasWriter. BLGP is also brought to you by the Radio Control Room Project. For details, please visit www.rcrproject.com or rfihc.com. Zig thanks you. For great justice.